The following sermon by Pastor Rick Holland is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. Open your Bibles to Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1, I want to read a verse that I think will launch us into what I estimate will be a few months studying this topic before us called ecclesiology. Titus chapter 1. You know the setting, Titus was a pastor on the Isle of Crete. He was also the pastor of pastors on the Isle of Crete. Uh, He was over a series of churches. Uh, He had one in every village, every town. He had established churches. And Paul writes him this letter, which is one of the pastoral epistles, which is, is a discussion about how to do ministry, how to organize the church, how to be effective for Jesus Christ as the body of Christ. There is a little phrase in the first chapter of Titus that I think will orient us in the study that's going to be upcoming. Paul says in first, excuse me, in Titus 1, verse 5, For this reason I left you in Crete on the island. Here it is. That you would set in order what remains. That you would set in order what remains. Very interesting Greek words. It means to make a right, to organize, to orient, to correct, to straighten. Paul's instruction to Titus really becomes a a backbone for what all of us want to see happen in the church of Jesus Christ universally and in the church of Jesus Christ locally. That it's done in order, that it's done with correction, that it's done in straightness, that it's done according to God's word. So for the next few months, we're going to devote our Sunday evenings to studying what theologians call ecclesiology, big word that simply means the doctrine of the church. Now, why is it so important to study the doctrine of the church? Well, it's the institution that Jesus created. Let me say it another way. It's the only institution Jesus created. He didn't leave us an elementary school, a junior high, a college. He didn't leave us a business or an organization. He left us the church. And the more we understand what the church was designed to be, the more I think we'll enjoy its blessings, the more we'll be faithful in her mission, and the more we'll be inclined to protect her purity. Let me ask you some preliminary questions as we begin the study. Do you love the church? Now, I know that you would automatically say yes. But think about this in two categories. Do you love the universal church? Are, are, you, are you passionate about the church's mission worldwide where we're supposed to go into all the world and preach the gospel to see Jesus Christ lifted up not only in the world but in the church where people's lives are oriented around the living, risen Savior? Do you love our church? I hope you do. You're here. Do you love the church that meets at 7820 Mission Road? Do you love Mission Road Bible Church? Do you believe that the church is worth your time, worth your money and giving, worth your investment, and worth your devotion? Do you love what God is doing here on Mission Road? Let me just tell you unequivocally, I do. I am, I am excited to get here uh, every day. I can't remember a day in the last two and a half years I've gotten up and thought, oh no, I've got to go to 7820 and do my job again. Now there are harder days than others, but this is pure joy to be able to do what God has called me and the elders to do here at the local body in Mission Road. If you love the church, universal, if you love the church locally, 
let me ask you a couple more questions to consider. If our church is so special, and it is, is it not? I got two amens, I appreciate that. If the church is special, and Mission Road is special, and it is, and I think you believe that, why are we not exporting what's so precious here around the world better? Why are we not exposing others to what is going on through evangelism and, and even church planting? We've been talking a lot at the Elder Board, even about the idea of church planting. And at some point in the next year, two, three, whatever, what we need to think about that. We are a church plant of Central Bible Church, which was down in, in Kansas City. And uh, as Richard uh, told, Richard, there's Richard, Richard tells us he's doing some historical work. When they made this church, this was like the end of the world in Kansas City, right? I mean, the next thing you hit was Dallas, pretty much. It was the furthest, it was Southwest Bible Church, because it was way south and way west of the city. That's great. Somebody had the vision to do this. Do we have the vision to do this somewhere else? Around the city, around the world? Let me ask you another question. If what we're doing is so precious and special here, here's the the question that every pastor wants to ask and everyone's embarrassed to ask, and why isn't it full? Why are there empty seats? Now, we can say, well, we believe in the doctrine of election, Rick. Well, yes, so do I. But the, the question I'm asking is, if this is so precious, wouldn't we want everyone we know to be a part of what God is doing in our midst? That's not to say that people are unfaithful. That's not to say people haven't invited people to church. Frankly, I'm not sure that we could fill every seat with the infrastructure of discipleship, care group, and leadership right now. But it's a thought. Why are there empty seats? Shouldn't our love for the church compel us to constantly invite others to be a part? The church is not a country club we visit on Sundays. It's the living organizational organism of Jesus Christ. I was asked once uh, when I first came here by someone, uh, and I was standing right there, um, and that was when the rows were kind of all odd, and I was asked, this question, it was a really interesting question. It took me off guard. This was the question I was asked within the first month of being here at Mission Road. Rick, are you trying to grow our church? Well, think about the answers you could give. If you say, well, yes, then you sound like you want to create a mega church, and no one wants to sound like that. But can you say no? Are you trying to grow our church? Oh, no. Oh, no. I'm trying to shrink our church. I mean, what? It's, it, the answer is obviously, let's grow it. But as my old pastor, John MacArthur, used to say, let's grow in depth and let God take care of the breadth. Of course we're trying to grow. As we said many times, the church is to be a hospital for sinners, not a museum for truth. We get together and we look at truth, we're proud of truth, we're, we're, we, we like our doctrine, then, then, then we're missing the whole point. This is something that we believe and own and want people to experience like we do. One of the most prominent temptations of churches who care about doctrinal fidelity, and we do, who are doctrinally sound churches, and I believe we are, is to create high walls and deep moats with very rusty drawbridges. We were talking with our elders last weekend when uh, Dan Dumas was here, and just 
just saying, shouldn't our church reflect Kansas City? Ethnically, socioeconomically, shouldn't our church reflect the, the footprint of the influence that we're trying to reach? If you drew a circle within 10 miles, just to got on a map and drew a circle within 10 miles and then looked at our constituency, I think we would say we praise God for who's here, but we're missing a lot of people. Our elders have been talking passionately and seriously and strategically about how can we increase our footprint of Mission Road Bible Church. But I want to explain that. We, we don't want to increase the footprint of Mission Road for Mission Road's sake. We want to increase the footprint of Jesus Christ through Mission Road Bible Church. We have no desire to make a great name for ourselves. We have a great desire for our church to make a great name of Jesus Christ. And I pray that we're ready and willing to live our lives for this great purpose, letting the world in Kansas City know that the Creator God sent His Son to die for the sins of those who believe the gospel. So for our time tonight, I want us to kind of reevaluate something. Now, I know what you're thinking, and, and I know what you're saying. I'm, I'm getting a little tired of, of what you do every Sunday with the mission statement. I get it. We may slow down on that, but I want to keep on reminding ourselves who we are, and why we do what we do. The title tonight is really the title of something we've, we've um, uh, put together uh, uh, as a, an update from the church office, Life on Mission. Now, there's a double entendre there, obviously Life on Mission Road and Life on the Mission that Christ has given us. And I want us to pick apart this, the, the, the mission statement that we put together uh, a couple of years ago. And I know we've talked about this, but not in, in one consolidated way. This was not something that we just sat around and invented out of thin air. The simple statement is the result of two days of study and prayer that the elders had a couple of years ago um, that we believe to be our mandate here on Mission Road. It's not canonized. This is not scripture. If we want to tweak it in the future, we can. If you see ways we can tweak it, we would love to hear from you. I think this captures who we're supposed to be, and we can certainly add to this, but I don't see anything we could take out of this. You know the mission statement well by now. I hope you've, you've come close to memorizing it. Let me say it again, and then I'm going to not exposit the mission statement, but tell you the, the, the tributary scriptures that fed into this statement so you know that what we're trying to do as a mission on Mission Road is thoroughly biblical. We exist to magnify, as Mission Road Bible Church, magnify God and spread a passion for His glory by making disciples and shepherding them to value Jesus Christ above all else in every dimension of life as regulated by the Word of God. Let's break that down a little bit. We exist. Why do we exist? We exist because Jesus founded the church. We don't exist because we're a great club. We don't exist because we're a great group of believers. We exist because Jesus said, I, Matthew 16, which we'll get to in a moment, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. We are those who have been handed a very bloody baton in the history of the church. The fact that we can worship here in freedom, that there's no threat of someone coming through the door, that there's no threat of someone knocking on the door and taking us to prison for singing the songs we sing, for opening the Bible that we have, for fellowshipping with each other, is a remarkable miracle. I've been in places in the world where it's 
illegal to do what we're doing here. What a gift of grace. Now, I, I, I just, we can thank God for being Americans for 10,000 reasons. You know what my main reason is? I thank God that I, I, I'm, I'm spared that worry. There's enough worries in the church. That worry is not one of them. Having said that, I remember talking to a guy in Ukraine one time who uh, was uh, telling me, it was, it was a very humbling moment. He said, Rick, we're praying. We have a group of pastors, a pastoral fraternal. We pray regularly for you all at Grace Community Church in Los Angeles, and we pray for, for the church in America because you're not persecuted enough. I said, explain that to me. He says, we're so glad we're persecuted because it keeps us pure and it makes us know who really belongs to Christ. And then he said, how, how do you know the people who come to your church really care about Jesus? It's a good question. He said, how do you know that they're really, what would happen if they, if they were persecuted? And then he asked me something that was really odd. He says, as I understand it, and he didn't really understand how it works, but this is, this is what he said. As I understand it, doesn't the government not charge you as much taxes if you give money to the church? I mean, the, the broad answer to that is what? Well, yes. I mean, you get a tax break or an exemption for a gift. And I, and I said, well, yeah, that's kind of what it is. And he said, oh, I'm so glad that's not the case here. Because we're confident that the people who give, give sacrificially. And I just wanted to crawl under a rock and say, maybe I should just come and be an intern for, from, from you for, for a while. We exist because God created his church. Universally, we exist because God created his church. Here, I'm so thankful for Central Church. In 1956, I think, is when the discussions began to happen. And they planted a church up on 75th. And they met there while they bought this property and built this property. And they operated under the auspices of um, the eldership down at Central Church. I think it was till 1969. Is that right, Richard? And then it became uh, fully separated. Yeah, and they had the vision to do this. And here's what's interesting. No one is here from that generation except for one person, I think, which is Johnny Grote. Isn't that remarkable? I think it's important that we look back and thank God that someone had the vision to, to do this. We're starting to ask the question, in 50 years from now, Will there be someone to thank God for the vision of us to reach out into Kansas City? Now, I, I've, at uh, two and a half years, I just got to tell you, my wife and I and, and our boys, we, we love Kansas City. I love the four seasons. Uh, I, I love the snow today. I, I, I love the area. It's wonderful. But, but what burdens me most about Kansas City is he has put us in the middle of this country where if you threw a rock in the middle of the country, it would make the splash in Kansas City. With the internet, with air travel, with the freeway system, we are positioned right in the middle of our country. Not only that, we are positioned, if you take the 435 loop, we are positioned right in the middle of Kansas City. Why? I think if you were to ask uh, the good Dr. Lloyd-Jones, who talked about his church in this way, or if you were to ask... The scriptures, it's for such a time as this. Just as Esther was born for that time and that place, we are here. And I think it's time, in joyful time, to start looking around and say, well, why, why us, why here, why now? It's just really exciting. 
Let's break it down. We exist to magnify God and spread a passion for his glory. Now, I'm going to go over some scripture. If you want to turn there, that's great. Uh, we're going to move pretty fast. Oil up the spines of your Bible and let's go. 1 Corinthians 10.31. 1 Corinthians 10.31. That's at the end of Paul's section on uh, Christian liberty. And he, he makes a statement regarding Christian liberty, which was the meat offered to idols in that context. And he makes a mundane statement that he ex- intends to be a magnanimous statement. The mundane statement is this. 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. A verse we know very well, but understand what he's saying. Even the simplest task of hydration and nutrition ought to have a Godward focus. You eat to the glory of God. You hydrate yourself to the glory of God. You abstain from liberties to the glory of God. You enjoy liberties for the glory of God. All is to be done under the watchful, caring, regulating principle of God and His Word. Everything has a theological implication. Now think about that. Everything we say, everything we do, every decision we make, everything has a theological implication. Our theology fed that decision and our theology will be spread through that decision. Colossians 1.18. Colossians 1.18. He is also the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself might come to have first place in everything. We're going to come back to the last phrase in a moment. He is the head of the body, the church. Magnify God, spread a passion for his glory means that what's important to God is what's important to Jesus, which is what is to be important to us by the means of the power of the Spirit of God. What's the priority to God? The church. The church is precious to God. The church is precious to Jesus. In a few weeks, we'll study how precious it is. He calls us his bride, his wife-to-be. Those of you who are married, you remember the, your, your longing thoughts of being married to your beloved fiancé? That's his relationship with us. So magnifying God and spreading a passion for his glory is to make important in the world what's important in the heart of God, which is the church. Romans 11.36. For from him and through him, the him is God, for from, let's, let's put, the, put God in the context for him because the, the context says that. For from God, him, and through God, him, and to God are all things. To him then be the glory forever. Amen. And glory doesn't just mean a shining light. Glory doesn't just mean fame you will get. Glory means absolute stunning stake in the ground importance. So, everything is to show how important God is in the church. Everything is to show in our lives how important God is in our lives. We had a silly um, phrase that we did in elementary school. You probably did it too. It was supposed to kind of embarrass you. Uh, we would say, your epidermis is showing. Remember that? And no one knew what that meant in the fourth grade. Well, you find out that that's your skin. Obviously, your skin is showing. In the same sense... Our theology is showing in everything we do in the church. Everything we do displays 
or diminishes our understanding of God's glory. Look at the next phrase. By making disciples. Turn over to Matthew chapter 28. Really familiar territory, the Great Commission, which Os Guinness recently wrote about and said in American evangelicalism is the Great Omission. The Great Commission. The Great Commission is important because there's so many levels and layers of application, but it's important in this passage to understand the grammar. And the English grammar doesn't help us as much as the Greek grammar does. So let me, let me break that down a little bit for you. And Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, he's about to, to go back to heaven, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. That's universal, absolute universal authority. Go, therefore, and make disciples. Now, that in the, in the English looks like two verbs, go and make. In, in, in the Greek language, there's a gerund. There's a participle here. It's going, therefore, make. There are a series of participles here, series of gerunds in English. Going, baptizing, teaching. But the main verb here is go and make, you, make disciples. Literally, it would be as you're going, because you're going, the substance of where you're going, the reason that you're going is to make disciples, and then look at this, of all nations. This goes back to the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant was to be given to Abraham through the Jews to show the glory of God to the nations. That has implications for us in Kansas City. That has implications for us in our country. And that definitely has implications for us in missions. Are we doing the great work of missions, which is sending people into the nations? John Piper has written, you only have three options when it comes to missions. You go, or you give so others can go, or you're disobedient. Pretty straightforward, and I think the scripture supports that statement. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations. Back up. What is making disciples? Making disciples is, is literally making Christians. It's causing people to come to belief in Christ and follow him. Go make disciples. The theological implications of this are very interesting. Can, uh, only God can make a disciple, yet he tells us to go and make disciples. Well, how do we do that? He'll, he'll tell us here in a second. Go and help people become Christians. Now, the Great Commission has two sides. It has two, two parts of it. The first is bring people to faith in Christ. That's the making of disciples. And the second part is maturing them, nurturing them, which is what the verse goes on to tell us. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That means making sure that the world knows they now belong to the Savior. It's a public affirmation that they have now, I hate to use this term, but joined the club. They've changed sides. They're now on Christ's side. That's what baptism did. John was baptizing long before Jesus did. The Essenes, the Qumranians were baptizing, which was a way of telling the people around, I now belong to this group of people. Jesus adopted that, pulled it into Christianity, and said, this is a way that you could show the world that you now belong to me. I love our baptistry, but I would love to go to the beach. I'd love to go to the mall, set up a pool, or get in the fountain right in the middle of the mall, and do baptisms there and say, this person now belongs to Jesus. And then verse 20. Teaching them, this is usually what we think about in discipleship. 
teaching them to observe, what's the next word? All that I've commanded you. You think that takes a weekend? That's a lifelong pursuit. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And oh, do I love this last phrase. How do we go and make disciples? We can't, so we have this last phrase. And lo, I am with you. How often? Always. To what extent? To the end of the age. That's our commission. We are called to go and make disciples, which means for us two things. Evangelism and maturity or discipleship. So it's not enough to go and share the gospel with someone and say, hey, great, see you in heaven. Now, if they live in another part of the country, if you're, if you're on a plane, fantastic. But to make sure they're planted into a good church. To share the gospel with someone without inviting them into the maturing process of the church is an incomplete message. God never intended us for us to just, just throw the gospel out and walk away. We're supposed to give the gospel and say, come, follow Christ with me. Now, I understand that if you're another place outside of the driving distance of Mission Road, you, but don't be satisfied with just telling a person the gospel and going, going off. If they respond, you are responsible to help them get connected to a church. Simple and plain. Next phrase, and shepherding them to value Jesus Christ above all else. The shepherding is the second part of that making disciples, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Now, what do we shepherd people to do? We have to be careful here because the, the, the agenda of evangelicalism has been uh, so adulterated in our generation. Um, it's been politicized, whereas we, we need to use the church as a voting mechanism and get people to vote a certain way. I'm glad I live in America. I vote, and then I, I go to sleep and pray that God's will will be done. Uh, if you want to put a sign on your yard, that's, that's okay, but that's not the mission of the church. We shepherd people, not politically, not even socially. We shepherd people to do what? Value Jesus above all else. Back to Colossians chapter 1. Verse 18, he is also the head of the body of the church. He's the, the captain of the church, the head, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that, why is he who he is? What does the identity of Christ drive in our lives? Last phrase, so that he himself will be the prototokos, have the first place, come to have preeminence in the church, yeah, in our lives, yeah, in our homes, yes. And our work, yes. What's the word? In everything. And we've talked about this before. This does not say Jesus Christ is to have first place above everything. That's not strong enough. It's not that Jesus, then is, you know, it's God and then family and then church and then work. That's not how it works. Jesus, it sounds odd, is not first place on our priority list. He's every place. He's first place in our family, first place in our job, first place in our eating, our pleasure, our drinking, everything. He is to come to have first place preeminence, bearing influence on everything we do and everything we are. Jesus is not to be a part of our lives. He is to be the point of our lives. And we shepherd people to do that. Remember, Paul, you can look at Philippians chapter 3. Great passage, which we know so well, but look at the accent and emphasis of Paul's goal in life. 
Philippians chapter 3, after giving his pedigree and how he was a Jew of Jews and, and uh, he, he had the best resume for being a Jewish scholar and a man who would be declared righteous by the law that you could possibly have, he says, but whatever things were gained to me, whatever things people looked at me and said, wow, about, those things I've counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view. In view. Do you underline things in your Bible? In view of what? How can you see everything in your life that people look at you and attribute importance to as loss? How can you do that? Only in view of the surpassing, it's greater than anything, value of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. Is that clear? Everything is subordinate to the value of knowing Jesus Christ. Everything. Anything that competes with that, the Bible calls an idol. He goes on. For whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them all but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. You know the, the Greek word there, skubalon. It is, it is sewage. Hang on, Paul. If you know Christ, how are you going to gain Christ? The passage tells us that he can know him more. Look at what he says later. And may, found, may be found in him not having a righteousness on my own derived from the law. Now we're back to Romans 2, 3, and 4. Paul had just described in the first part of Philippians 3 all of his righteousness that could have been ticked off because of, of uh, uh, his Jewishness. Tick this off. I'm, I'm now, uh, I was a Sanhedrin. I was uh, trained by Gamaliel. All these amazing things. My pedigree was great. But that didn't give me righteousness. It didn't come from the law. But that which is found through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Sola fide again, right? Why? He comes back to the same issue, that I may know him. Do you long to know him? Not to be better, not to try harder, not to be gooder. Do you long to know Christ better? And the power of his resurrection... And the fellowship of his sufferings? Now we find something out about knowing Christ. There's that statement that the, that the, the Roman Catholics have, have uh, wrongly applied in Colossians that says, I'm going to fill up that which is lacking in Christ's suffering. They fill that up with the Eucharist. What is Paul saying there? It's what he's saying here. Since they can't get to Jesus to persecute him, they will persecute his bride. They'll persecute us. And Paul says, with a smile on his face, oh, that I could share in his sufferings. That would bring me joy. Do you really understand the power of the next phrase? Being conformed to his death? We live in Kansas City. There's, who's the last person you ever met who 
their faith could have possibly cost them their life. Paul said that would be great. Earlier in Philippians, it's just, it's almost funny. If it wasn't so serious, it would be funny. He has an argument with himself at the end of chapter one on whether he should die or stay. And he says, well, he's scratching his head, you know, I want to die and be with Christ. I want to depart and be with Christ, but to stay here will be beneficial for you. And I know he wants me to stay here, so I guess I'll just stay. Have you ever had that kind of argument with yourself? I'd love to die today, but I guess I'll stay. It's, it's profitable for the kingdom. How can he say that because of this passage? Because he knows Christ Jesus. He can't be, wait to be with him and enjoy his perfect fellowship where faith is erased and sight is drawn. I love verse 12. Not that I've already obtained it. And you want to say, Paul, wait, you are so far ahead of me. I don't even know how to, how to compare this. But I press on that I may lay hold of that for which I was also laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So the church's goal, our goal here, is to teach people to value Jesus Christ above everything else. Matthew 16, Jesus said, I will build my church, the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And Peter, I'm going to build this on the foundation of what you just said. What had Peter just said that was going to be the foundation of the church? That Jesus was truly the Messiah. It's Jesus, it's Jesus, it's Jesus. We don't die for truth as an abstraction. We fight and die for truth which is incarnate, our living risen Savior who gave us truth. Those are one and the same. They combine together. Look at the next phrase. In every dimension of life as regulated by the word of God. 2 Peter chapter 1. Turn there for a moment. 2 Peter chapter 1. We're talking, as you're turning there, with the collegians this, um, uh, this weekend and talking with the, the men at our Anvil meeting on Friday morning about the fact that there are two kinds of biblical instruction. There's the biblical instruction, which is mandates, do not lie, do not steal, be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, um, forgive your neighbor uh, as God has forgiven you, do this. That's pretty clear, right? But there's a whole other world of biblical wisdom, which means we take all those mandates, all those stories, all that data, all that worship, and we translate that into the best decision we can make that will bring the greatest glory to God and the most attention to Jesus in the decisions that we make. Look at how that applies here. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in... Stop right there. Whatever he says next, I'm interested in. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in... In what? Tell me, tell me, tell me. In the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. The Greek there is very interesting. It basically, there's one preposition that says that's the same person. Seeing... Let me ask you again. Do you underline things in your Bible or circle verses? This is, this is epic. 
that God's divine power has granted to us, look at this word, everything, everything pertaining to life, that's living of life, and godliness, that's pleasing God. How? How do we get all that through? He says it again. The true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. You see the sufficiency there? Everything you need from life, about life, and to live godly is found in the knowledge of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Where do you find the knowledge of God and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ? In the Bible. It's regulated by God's word. But God's word, this this scares some people, God's word is a means. It's not an end. The Bible leads us to understand God. We're not bibliologists, as some people accuse us of. We don't worship the truth. We're thankful for the truth because it shows us who God is and what he expects and how we can have a more vital living relationship with a resurrected living Savior who is not dead. Turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy 3. Verse 14, he's Paul's telling Timothy, who's pastoring his church, the church that he planted in Ephesus. I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long, but in case I'm delayed, I write to you so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. Do you see how those two are connected? The truth is connected to the fact that God is alive. It's not an abstraction. It's not a code of ethics. It's attached to the fact that we have a living God. 2 Timothy 3, you know this very well, verse 16. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. There's no paragraph uh, separation between that and the, and the next. I solemnly charge you then in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, by his appearing, his kingdom, preach the word. That's why we preach expositionally. We're going to have a whole uh, sermon devoted to why we, we, we preach the way we do, why we go verse by verse through the Bible. Um, I was... Um, I just saw a tweet uh, last week by a guy who was bragging about the fact that he's, and this is not to put us on a pedestal, it just shocked me. He said, we are going to spend the next 20 weeks, 22 weeks in the book of Romans and mine everything out that God has been there. I'm sorry the series is so long. And I just went, oh my. Couldn't you spend the rest of our lives in Romans 1-1? So the question is this, do you believe that we ought to try to implement that mission statement, that purpose clause? There are other mandates. This this church can do so much more than this, but the church can never do less than this. But at the heart of that mission statement, please don't miss it, is the person of Christ. 
is to value him above everything else, to personalize our faith with a real Savior who is truly alive, who sits at the right hand of God making intercession for us. He is praying for us right now. Is that alarming? Is that comforting? Is that surprising? Being omniscient and omnipresent, the Spirit of Jesus being with us, Acts and Galatians says, Jesus is praying for us. If that's not enough, Romans 8 also says, the Spirit is translating our prayers and praying for us when we try to pray. That, that's just almost too much to process. That the God of the universe cares for this little place on Mission Road and the people who are here. What, what a thought. He doesn't have split attention. He doesn't have ADD. He has full and focused attention on you as if you are the only human alive. What a God. So what do you think the threats are to accomplishing this? We had a good discussion with some of our, el- with our elders actually last week. We just threw some things around. What, are we, what, what really hinders us from trying to do this? These are some things we threw around. Mediocrity, sin, fear, unholy contentment, arrogance of ecclesiology, thinking that we're, we're where we shouldn't, we're, we're further along than we should be, arrogance of thinking we need to be, and never having this, I love this phrase, un, having a holy, H-O-L-Y, discontentment, never being satisfied, but pressed, what Paul said, even though he was where he was, Paul said, I press on further. Every church eventually faces the question that defines its future. Central Church asked this question 50 some odd years ago. 60 years ago, actually. 60 years ago plus. And the question is this. Do we want to preserve the good old days or reach a new generation for Jesus Christ? Every church has to look at the the old days, and I mean last month, not last decade, I mean, and say, are we content to just keep going, or do we want to shake things up personally in our church? I would love for the city of Kansas City to know to think that we are absolute fools for Christ. Absolute lunatics, as the Greek says, for Christ. Um, very interesting. This is not the time for this, but I want to, I want to use it as an illustration. Uh, last week, as most of you know, uh, there was a, a debate with uh, uh, Ken Han and Bill Nye. How many of you saw that debate? Quite a few of you. Uh, we watched it as a family. Um, and um, it was remarkable to me that, um, and I've had discussions with, with Ken Ham about this. He's a, he's a dear brother. But it was very interesting to me to just kind of smile at the end of it. To spend an hour and a half saying, the science supports, the science supports, the science supports. And all the time, Bill saying, Bill and I saying, but the science supports this, but the science supports And it's like back and forth, back and forth. And then finally, the best thing that, that Ken Ham said all night was the thing that made him sound the most foolish and the most naive. You know what it was? Ultimately, I believe this because the Bible says it. And if every scientific discovery known to man came against Genesis 1, I'd still rest in the Word of God. That's where we are, isn't it? Isn't that where, isn't that, 
Do you want to be, let me ask you, do you want to be a fool with the rest of us for Christ in this area, or do we just want to have the nice little country club and and enjoy the fellowship and say high five for Jesus on Sunday? I'm not saying you're doing that. Let's just not do that. Let's make a splash. We're going to die. Let's burn out for Christ and, and make this city know that Jesus is alive and working here. Or call us foolish, call us ridiculous, call us naive, call us the scum of the earth, as 1 Corinthians 1 says. But joyfully join in the sufferings of Jesus for his great name's sake. Wouldn't that be a blast to do together? We're already there. We're already going there. As Paul said, doing great, but three words. Say it with me. Excel still more. So that's what we're going to do over the next, next few months is study uh, the church. This is not, we're not studying this because I think that the church, Mission Road needs a big spiritual spanking and I've got a paddle, a boat oar. Or, that's not what we're saying. What we're saying is let's, let's excel still more. I want to rattle the gates of hell that have a captive audience in Kansas City. Let's let's be discontent with where we are, happy with where God can call us to be, and really, really aggressive. We have the message of life. We have the message of life. And I think that what makes me most excited is what we have here at Mission Road. I would love for every believer on the planet to be able to experience anyone in Kansas City who wants to be shepherded and discipled and grow in the grace and knowledge of, of Jesus Christ to know that this is a place they can do it. Um, this is a terrible statement because I, you'll, you'll know I'm going to repent of the statement when I say it, even though I don't really want to repent of it. I'm really proud of our church. Well, you're not supposed to be proud. I know, but just in the same sense that when your, your son hits his first home run, I'm proud, okay? I love our church. I want anybody who wants to experience joy, peace, faithfulness, fellowship, the joy of Christ to meet you. I love that we have to turn the lights out on you on Sundays. We got people who have to lock up the the doors going, flicking the lights. You know, go on. What a great thing. It would be so bad if everybody ran as soon as we said amen. Don't run because we have something to do tonight. Father, give us grace as we study ecclesiology. We are not what we should be, but I'm so thankful that we are who you've called us to be. Lord, instruct us to be more faithful, to be deeper, and that we can leave the breadth to you. I love our church. What a blessing Mission Road is. I'm thankful for Central Church who invested. I'm thankful for the the longest standing pastor, 19 years, our friend Rod, who faithfully planted seeds that we're all watching be watered and bloom in our own lives. We want to excel still more, Lord. Show us how to, for your glory, for your fame, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a presentation of Mission Road Bible Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com.